James, brother of Jesus, penned these words in his letter to the churches. In James chapter 1, verse 17, every good, and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This text was written in the context of discussing trials that believers encounter. God is, of course, sovereign over all of our trials. We do not, as some erroneously say, assume that all of life will be easy or trial-free. The temptation is to suspect that perhaps God doesn't have good intentions for us as we go through trials. The temptation is to become angry or at least frustrated with God's sovereign choices for our lives or the lives of our loved ones. If our trials ultimately lead us to sin, if we become sinfully angry and lash out at someone, if we're tempted to lust after that which we've lost, or that which someone else has but we want, if we're tempted to lust after something, is that God's fault as we go through trials? James's answer is, do not be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God the Father gives good gifts to his children, in other words. He does not give spoiled or rotten gifts. He does not give gifts that will lead us to fall. He gives us only that which is good and perfect. We sin as a result of what's in our own hearts. That's on us. God the Father gives, designs, purposes, intends only that which is for our ultimate good. Paul said it this way in Romans, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The idea in that text is not just that things happen to work out, but that God himself works out everything ultimately for our good. The question is, whenever we come to any truth like that, is do you believe it? Do you believe that our Heavenly Father gives good and perfect gifts? And whether or not you believe that really will determine how you respond to the Father. As we've been reading in our passage in Ephesians, the right response to God the Father at all times is to praise him. We looked at that last week. Well, again, we're at the start of our series in Ephesians and looking particularly at the first sentence in the letter of Ephesians. And that first sentence runs from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through verse 14. And we focused particularly on verse 3 last week. There, Paul exhorted the church with what I called a call to worship. It's a call to worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus referred to God as his father frequently in the Gospels. We identified this as Trinitarian language, meaning it is how we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. The church didn't just make up the doctrine of the Trinity to make God seem more complex. The church has come to understand the doctrine of the Trinity in part due to elements in the Old Testament from the words of Jesus himself and subsequently from the teaching of the apostles. Each member of the Trinity has a role in the creation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity has a role in sustaining creation, and each member of the Trinity, as we see in this passage, has a role in the process of redemption. In our text, in Ephesians, Paul is focusing on worshiping God for his redeeming work of grace toward us in Christ. 
We, those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, are those who are in Christ. We are to praise the Father for these things that he has done. Again, he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Both our lips and our lives ought to reflect that. He has given all things to the Son. Therefore, it is only those who are in Christ, those who are in the Son, who will receive those gifts. The gifts in our passage are identified as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This truth should really revolutionize the way we think about the word blessing. These blessings are of heaven. They are a product of the heavenly realm. As Christ is currently seated in the heavenly places and we have been united with him spiritually, thus positionally in heaven, so we are granted to partake in the same benefits that Christ does. Well, as I mentioned last week, the remaining verses in chapter three, or ver- chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, outline how each member of the Trinity participate in the act of blessing. The salvation of humanity is an act of blessing. It is a grace of God at work. In verses 4 through 6, we see how the Father was particularly involved in this act of blessing. In these few verses, we will see that the Father from all eternity chose to save some people. From the whole of humanity, the Father chose to save some, and there are three results of his choices. In verse 4, we see that he chose some with the result that they would be holy. In verse 5, we see that he chose some with the result that they would be a part of his family. And in verse 6, we see that he chose some for the praise of his glory, that we would be holy, that we would be a part of his family and for the praise of his glory. Now read verse chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 again for context. But again, this morning, we'll focus in on verses 4 through 6. Read with me in the text, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come before you with grateful hearts and ask as we come before your word that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Again, our focus is on verses 4 through 6. 
We'll look at that first point that in Christ, God has chosen some that they would be holy. Again, verse 3 says that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, first of all, the us in verse 4 is the same us from verse 3. Paul is just following along with this argument. It is the church. It is those who have been made alive together with Christ. We talked about that last week. They are the ones who have been chosen by the Father. Well, what does it mean to be chosen? The Father has selected some. From the whole of humanity, fallen humanity, he selected a part. And that makes sense, right? If no one was selected, separated, pulled out of the fire, as it were, then no one would be saved. We use that generic language when we talk about salvation, that we have been saved. Well, saved from what? Scripture maintains in Romans chapter 3 that we are all under sin. There Paul says all are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That text of scripture was intended to outline God's feeling, God's thought about all of humanity apart from Christ. No one does good. There's no one righteous. Doesn't mean how nice a person they are. Doesn't matter how nice a person they are. Doesn't matter how many good deeds we do. In God's eyes, there's no one righteous. No, not one. In chapter 3, verse 23 of Romans, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. As we'll see in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, as a result of us being sinners, those who fall short of the glory of God, that we are children of wrath, meaning children deserving wrath. No one does good. We all sin. We all earn death for sin. We are children deserving the wrath of God due to our sin. When we talk about being saved, we mean that we are saved from the wrath of God. God must judge sin. He must deal with it. He's perfect in all of his ways. If he is perfect in all of his ways, then he's perfectly just. He cannot simply overlook sin. When we hear of court proceedings and we hear of people being sentenced or we hear of people um, having their court, their being accused and being brought into a judge, place of judgment, and we hear of judges who are seemingly overlooking certain aspects of the law or not giving as much attention and allowing some people to go free or prosecutors for that matter who seem to be allowing some people to go free and not others, we recognize that that's just unjust. If God were to simply overlook sin and ignore sin and allow sinners, those who have offended him, to go free, then he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be good. So he must judge sin. And he must judge sin to the degree that sin is sinful, right? To the degree that the law has been broken, he must judge sin. To the degree that his honor has been offended as the judge, he must judge sin. Think about it this way, and I've used this analogy before, but... If you strike your neighbor, your neighbor may strike you back or, I mean, you really shouldn't be striking your neighbor. I think we all know that. But if you did, 
Your neighbor might strike you back, right? Um, they may press charges and, you know, whatever the law of the land is, it'll be handled by local authorities and you'll go through whatever that process is and that'll be it. But if for some reason, some strange reason, you've completely lost your mind and you have the opportunity to strike the President of the United States, there's going to be a completely different set of experiences for you, right? And that's because the President of the United States has more honor. He's, he, he has more honor. He, he carries a greater weight of honor with him as the President of the United States, and so there are different laws and different regulations that come into play. Well, let's ratchet that up to the God of the universe, the one who created all things. How much honor is he due? The laws that he has, his law is greater than the law of this land. And so the honor due to him, the consequences that will be brought upon you as a result of dishonoring him are eternal consequences. He must judge sin, and his judgment will come with the full weight and honor of the creator and ruler of the universe. You will receive eternal consequences because God has an eternal honor due to him. While all of us have already broken God's law, again, no one is righteous, no, not one. We all sin and fall short of his glory. Therefore, all of us, every last person on God's earth, is already deserving of his judgment. The Bible says if we break one part of the law, then we're guilty of all, period. So again, if God doesn't do something to intervene on our behalf, then no one will be saved. If God doesn't choose us, if God doesn't reach out to us, no one will be saved. No one deserves to be saved. No one is worthy of being saved. And no one will receive salvation. God has to work on our behalf. And that's what we see in Scripture, in the pages of Scripture. God does work on our behalf. God does save. He does choose some. This is the doctrine of election. He chooses to deliver some from the justice that they deserve. He chooses to spare some from the wrath that is coming. He chooses to save some. And ultimately, his choice to save some has everything to do with his love for his son. Again, we talked about this quite a bit last week, but the father loves the son and has given him all things. Part of the all things that the father has given to the son as a gift of love is people. He has decided to gift some people to the son, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In Psalm 2, we read, ask of me, this is the father speaking to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The father has chosen, has set apart some, has drawn some to the son, he, to the son. he gives them a new birth, he gives them faith to believe, and the son saves them. Now, last week also, we looked at John chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there briefly with me. John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus lays out this whole process here before us. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus has just fed the multitudes on one side of the sea, he crosses over to the other side of the sea and they come running after him because they want more bread. 
They want to eat more. They want him to show them another miracle. And Jesus says, it's not the physical bread that you need, but you need spiritual bread. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And here's a spiritual truth. But I have said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. So there are people who are literally looking at Jesus. They see him. They even just saw a miracle where he fed over 5,000 people. And yet they're not believing. They're not coming to him because they believe. He knows that. He's acknowledging that. They're coming to him because their bellies were full. I said to you, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Again, there are some who have looked upon him and yet have not believed. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? Again, they're missing the point. They're missing the point because they cannot see the truth of Jesus' words. And they do not believe. He says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And so here's the truth that we get. The father has given some to the son. Verse 37. The father draws them to the son. They believe in the son. Jesus does not cast them out, but he raises them up on the last day. We also read from John chapter 10 earlier in our scripture reading. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 24, he says, so the Jews says, so the Jews gathered around him. This is John 10 verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them. I told you, and yet you do not believe. Again, there are some who see him and they hear his words and they still don't believe. I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the Father has given sheep to the Son. Jesus knows who they are. We don't know who they are. The Father has given some to the Son. And the son lays down his life for those sheep, for his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. He knows them. They know him. They listen to his voice. If they're not a sheep, they don't listen to his voice. Shepherds attest to this all over the world. They call out to their sheep. Their sheep hear them. And they move on from one flock to another. You can mix and mingle multiple sheeps. Multiple sheeps. (laughs) Multiple flocks of sheep who each have different shepherds 
but they will only listen to the voice of their shepherd. And so Jesus uses this analogy to point out this very basic spiritual truth. I have sheep, my sheep hear my voice. Those who are not my sheep do not hear my voice, meaning those who have been given to him by the Father will hear his voice. They will believe. They will follow him. He will give them life. He will raise them up on the last day. In the end of that passage, I love, it is such a beautiful truth. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Meaning those who are his, he holds them. He keeps them forever. The father who's given them to him holds them, keeps them forever. If you are in the son, if you are a part of his fold, he will never let you go. That is a beautiful truth, beloved. Again, the father has given some to the son. Again, by way of summary, those who have been given to the son are drawn by the father in order that they may see the son Look upon the Son, hear the voice of the Son, meaning that they believe in the Son. The Son knows them. He lays down his life for them. He gives eternal life to them. They become a part of one flock with all who trust in him. They will never perish. He keeps them. The Father keeps them. No one can take them away, and he raises them up on the last day. We have that group, and then we have the group of those who see him but do not believe those who hear him but do not believe and they see him and hear him but do not believe because they're not of his sheep this is the doctrine of election in our text again it says the father has chosen us well this doctrine has led to some very significant questions i'll try to address a few of them why did he select some and not others well, the only logical answer to that as we continue to read through the rest of the passage is because that's what he wanted to do. I can't give you anything more than that. Look back at the text. He chose us in him, verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Later in verse 9, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 11, this is the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. God has chosen to save some out of all of humanity. Again, all of humanity is under a curse. All of humanity is deserving of judgment. And so all God had to do is really just let him go off into judgment. But he didn't do that. He chose to save some from the judgment. He is creator. He is God. He has every right to do that. Well, does that mean that God is unjust? He seeming, seems to choose arbitrarily some people out of all of the people. Why does he do that? Does that mean that he is being unjust? Why would he save some and not others? Well, again, what would be the just thing for God to do? The just thing for God to do with those who have broken his law, those who have offended them, would be to give them the consequences that they deserve. Right? The just thing would not be just to pardon them. The just thing would be to give them the consequences they deserve. But he doesn't do that because not only is he just, he's also merciful. 
Romans chapter 9 is a good passage to read if you want to read further on thinking about God's choice and his mercy. There Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God has mercy on whomever he wants. The fact that he chooses to have mercy on anyone should be shocking to us. Like We shouldn't sit back and wonder, why did God not choose to have mercy on this person or that person? That's not the question. The question is, why on earth would he choose to have mercy on anyone? I mean, I'll just answer that question for myself. I don't know why he chose to have mercy on me. Because I know me. I mean, maybe you guys think, you know, a bit more about some others whom you know. I mean, I know some really nice people, some really good people. And I pray for those really nice and good people who don't know the Lord. But the fact of the matter is that it's shocking to me that God has chosen to have mercy on anyone. Another question that comes up as we're thinking about the choice of God in election is on what basis does the Father choose? Why does he choose some and not others? Well, I think we've already kind of answered that. He does it because that's just what he wants to do. Um, but you will hear as you read about this doctrine, and you will hear from time to time and you know, various messages that um, often the issue of faith comes up, right? Uh, generally, evangelicals will say either that God chooses on the basis of his foreknowledge of faith, or as we've already said, that he chooses simply based on his own will. Faith is, of course, the means by which we, humanly speaking, take hold of the grace of God and salvation. We believe in the gospel. And some people reason that the fall has not affected our ability to believe in Christ. So in order for our faith to be legitimate, in order for us to legitimately be able to believe in the Lord Jesus, then we have to be able to do that on our own. Therefore, in the context of God's choice, those whom he chooses, what they'll say is that God chooses to save some based on his foreknowledge of their faith. So he looks down the corridors of time, so to speak, and he sees that some people are going to believe in him. And so he chooses those people. Well, the problem with that should be obvious, right? If God chooses based on his knowledge of their faith, then there would be some reason for boasting. But scripture is clear. There is no reason for boasting. We see that, and we'll get to that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Grace is all about what God has done. It's all about the fact that he has chosen to save some, he has chosen to show mercy to some. He has chosen to pour out his grace to some. And those whom he's chosen, he gives faith to believe. Now, there are all kinds of questions that we could consider in thinking about the doctrine of election, but don't miss the forest for the trees here, right? Again, the real question is, why did God choose to save any? Mercy is never something deserved. Grace is never something deserved. You cannot say that God should have shown mercy or grace to someone because if he were obligated, then it wouldn't be mercy or grace. The fact that God has chosen to save any at all should lead us to be humble. If you are in Christ, it's not because you are so good. It's not because you've done good. It's not because you look good. It's because God has decided to show mercy to you. 
He has decided to give you faith in his son, to give you new birth, to forgive you of your sin, to gift you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God did that, not you. Again, to the point of this section, if God has chosen to show mercy to you, it should lead you to praise. God could have chosen anyone. He could have chosen to save any from the fire, but he chose to save you. He could have chosen to give you what you deserve, but instead he chose to be merciful to you. It should lead you to praise. If you have nothing to praise God about for the rest of your life, if he never helps you with another thing, if you die poor, lonely, destitute, on the side of the road, with no one else around you, but you are in Christ, you have everything. God has chosen to show you mercy. He has chosen to be gracious and to snatch you out of the fire. Moreover, it should lead us to trust him more. He has chosen you. If he has chosen you, he will not abandon his choice. Again, the text of John 6 and 10 remind us that the bread of life, the good shepherd, will not fail to do his work. He will not fail to do what the Father has commanded him, to keep those who are given and raise them up on the last day. No matter what may come in this life, if he's chosen you for eternal life in a son, he will complete the good work that he has begun. Getting back to our text, again, it says that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That's when he chose us. He chose us before we could ever do anything Before the world was made, before we did anything right or wrong, God saw us in his mind and he chose to be merciful and gracious to us. It occurred to me that we often scramble in this life to fit in, to be liked, to be loved, to be cared for. We do all manner of things to be accepted, to be thought well of by others. But whose opinion really matters? I mean, the God of the universe had you in his mind before the world even began. He had you in his mind before the world was made, again, before you actually did anything right or wrong. And while you were a sinner, he was thinking about you and setting his mercy and grace upon you. Who else's acceptance do you need? But again, back to our text in Ephesians, to what were we chosen? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Well, we know what it means to be holy, right? It means to be set apart. It means to be pure. It means to be untainted by sin. Not only are we chosen to be holy, set apart, pure, untainted by sin, but we're also be chosen to be blameless. That means to be above reproach. Meaning we could not be accused of sin. God has chosen us for that purpose. And this is significant because God is the judge. We've talked about that before. The text says that he has been We have been chosen to be holy and blameless before him as if we're sitting in a court of law. In the universal court of law, we're sitting there and we're standing before God. And this truth means that as we stand before God in the court of law, the way he sees us, the verdict that he's going to pronounce is holy and without blame. That's what he's chosen us for. So I didn't choose us to be screw ups, right? He didn't choose us to make the most of our lives and to fail. He didn't choose us to fall away. He didn't choose us to continue to live the way we lived before we came to faith in Christ. He chose us to be holy and blameless. Now, if he chose us to be holy and blameless, then we should be living holy and blameless lives today. Yes? 
Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. He says that those of us who are in Christ have been raised to the newness of life. He says that we are no longer slaves of sin, but we're freed from sin. He says, therefore, we should no longer let sin reign in our mortal bodies to obey it, but rather we should be presenting our bodies, our members, as instruments of righteousness. Because all of these things are true, because God has chosen us to be holy and blameless, we have been released from the power of sin, and so we ought to walk in the newness of life. Those who have been chosen to be holy and blameless ought to be living holy and blameless lives. Paul says it this way in Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the great glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. The grace of God at work in our lives teaches us to say no to sin. So if you've been chosen by God, chosen to be holy and blameless, then you can say no to sin. That's the point. You can turn away. You've chosen us to be holy and blameless before him. Again, we ought to live holy and blameless lives today, but there's more. There's much more as we continue on in the passage. He's chosen us to be homely and blameless before him. Let's take a look at that next verse. He's chosen us also to be a part of his family. Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now to predestine means to mark out something beforehand, to determine something beforehand. What was determined beforehand and the implications of the beforehand is that it happened at the same time of the choosing, right? And the choosing that we mentioned earlier in our passage, God predestined us before the foundation of the world, in other words. And what he predestined beforehand before the foundation of the world, what he determined beforehand before the foundation of the world is that we would also be adopted as sons, Now, Paul's audience would have been most familiar with the Roman concept of adoption. I have a a quote here to think about that. I think it's significant. The writer says, in order to understand adoption, one must understand the structure of the Roman family. The father had absolute power, patria potestas, over the members of the family so that he could even take the life of a member of his family. And that act would not be considered murder. With regard to property, he had full legal ownership of everything the family had and could dispose of it as he willed. Under Roman law, the procedure for adoption had two steps. In the first step, the son would have to be released from the control of his natural father. This was done by a procedure whereby the father sold him as a slave three times to the adopter. The adopter would release him two times, and he would automatically again come under the father's control. With the third step, the adoptee was freed from his natural father. Regarding the second step, since the natural father no longer had any authority over him, the adopter became the new father with absolute control over him. And he retained this control until the adoptee died, or the adopter freed him. The son was not responsible to his natural father, but only to the newly acquired father. The purpose of this adoption was so that the adoptee could take the position 
of a natural son in order to continue the family line and maintain property ownership. The son became the patria potestas in the next generation. In other words, this process of adoption had to do with perhaps an adopter, someone who wanted to adopt, who didn't have a natural son. And there was another person who did have a natural son, but was willing to essentially sell or allow this natural son to be adopted by this other individual. And this other individual took this natural son, took this other son into his family, and he became a son to him and was adopted with full rights and privileges such that even to the degree that he would inherit everything that the father had, the newly adopted father had. I mean, we have a process of adoption as well, and it's not quite as robust as the Roman process of adoption, but it's the same idea, right? We bring someone who is not a natural family member into our family. Well, in this case, the father, the God of heaven, has absolute control over his family. He has paid a ransom for us. The text says that we were predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ to himself. The ransom was paid by the blood of Jesus, his son. We'll get into that in a couple of verses. He paid the ransom for us and now brings us into his family through Jesus Christ. God has brought us into his family, legally paying our ransom and otherwise by uniting us with his only begotten son, thus securing us a dwelling place in his house forever. Now, I cannot stress that enough, this enough. There's no other way to be a part of the family of God. There's no other way to receive the benefits of being in his family but through Jesus Christ, his son. He is the one through whom the ransom was paid. He is the one through whom the adoption was completed. The adoption happened through Jesus Christ to himself, meaning to the father. We are made a part of the father's family. Why can we call God our father? Again, we can call him our father in prayer We can petition him as our father in prayer. We can look to him as an anxious child looks to his father. We can have a relationship with the God of the universe by which we call him Abba Father because he has chosen to bring us into his family. He has adopted us in Christ. This was again in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. All of our salvation is based on nothing other than the purposes and will of God. God wanted to do this. Listen, he wanted to adopt you as his child. What's more precious or valuable than that? The God of the universe didn't just make you and leave you. He didn't just make you, redeem you, and leave you to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. He made you, though he knew you would sin against him from eternity past. He chose to redeem you and to adopt you into his family. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will, frankly. And don't miss the implication of this. We'll come back to this throughout the letter of Ephesians. But if God has adopted each one of us individually into his families, then that means that we're all a part of the same family in Christ. If you've trusted in Christ, if you put your faith in him, if you are a believer today, then you have a brother or sister sitting next to you. Because we're all a part of the same family. Life is full of disappointments and cruelty. People can be cruel. People can and do reject you for any reason. People can forget about you. Life can be hard. Family members become ill. Again, grandchildren become ill and hospitalized. Children become ill or pass away unexpectedly. Husband, wife, father, mother, sister, brother become ill and pass on. Sometimes we lose our jobs. Sometimes our jobs are just not meeting ends for us. 
We get sick, we have debilitating ongoing ailments that sometimes keeps us from doing the things that we like. Strokes, swelling of the legs, heart issues, lung issues, aches and pains. We grow old, we get tired, weary and worn down. But if you're in Christ, this one truth will never change. You will always be a child of our Heavenly Father. He chose that for you before the world began. You were in his mind, you were in his heart. And he chose and determined that you would be a part of his family. That's always going to be true. It is as Spurgeon said, he who counts the stars and calls them by names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. We can count on that truth. Finally, in Christ, we've been chosen to be holy, to be a part of his family. And we have been chosen for his glory. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I said last week when we looked at verse 3 that this whole sentence from 3 through 14 is a call to worship. That fact is confirmed by the repetition of the phrase like this in each of the sections here to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, so that we might praise the glory, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Don't miss that point. Salvation is not primarily man-centered, though we often think of it that way. This passage is a call to worship because it reminds us of how great the grace of God is towards us. It reminds us how multifaceted it is. It reminds us how, how good God is. And it reminds us that we ought to be moved to praise as we consider these things. The reality is that God has done all of these things so that we would praise his glory. He desires for us to praise him. Now, that's not is the same thing as saying that God needs us. He doesn't need us to be God, right? He is God in and of himself. He doesn't need to be affirmed in his godliness. But it does desire, it is his will for his people, those who have been chosen by him, set apart in his son. It is his desire that we praise him, that we honor him, that we praise the glorious grace that he's poured out on us in the beloved, in his son, Jesus. We come back really to this basic tenet of the Christian faith. We exist, each of us individually, each of us as we have been brought into the family of God. All of us collectively are in Christ for the glory of God. We are in Christ so that God would be magnified, so that his glorious grace would be magnified among us. Let me ask, does your life reflect his glorious grace? Do your lips speak of his glorious grace? Do you gather together with the people of God to proclaim his glorious grace, the grace with which he's bestowed on us in his beloved son? Is that your desire when you come here Sunday after Sunday? Is that your desire as you walk, as you live, as you move about, as you exist Sunday through Saturday to praise his glorious grace, that he would be magnified by you through your life, your words, your thoughts, If not, you need to consider whether or not you're truly in the faith. You need to consider perhaps what is preventing you from glorifying him. If there's something else that you're clinging on to in your life that's preventing you from thinking about God in that way. And if that is in your heart, then excel. Don't grow weary in doing good and living for the glory of God, but excel in that, knowing that this is the reason for which he has chosen you in Christ. Well, again, God is a good father. He gives good and perfect gifts to his children. 
The Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Remembering this helps to put all of life in context. No matter the difficulty, no matter the trials, no matter what we endure in life, we can be at peace because our Heavenly Father has chosen us. He's chosen us to be holy. He's chosen us to be a part of his family from all eternity. And he desires for us to do these things for his glory. If that is true, if he has chosen us from before the foundation of the world, we can be confident, again, that as Paul said, the one who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you once again with grateful hearts as we think about this truth that you are God, that you are our Heavenly Father that you give every good and perfect gift, that one of the good and perfect gifts that you've given to us, you gave to us from before the world began. You chose us. You chose to set your grace on us. You chose to pour out the riches of your grace on us in your beloved son, in Jesus. You chose us to be holy and blameless before you in love. You chose us, you predestined us for adoption into your family. You chose us, you set us apart so that we, of all of your creation, would be able to glorify you in a way that none of the rest of your creation can. So, Father, as we think on those truths, I pray that you allow it to minister to our hearts, to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our hearts, to help us to be refreshed and renewed in our minds as we go out and as we go forth this week so that we can seek to live to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this all in Christ's blessed name. Amen.